All right, good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here, and uh, man, I'm just really glad to be here with you guys today. I love this weather. I love overcast and cloudy, and we don't get too many days like that in Vegas, so I cherish them all. Uh, before we jump into today's sermon, I got one quick announcement for you. Uh, last week, we announced that our community cohorts are opened up for registration, and I just want to highlight one of those for you today. Uh, many of you know that they're launching out this fall, and so ladies, this one is just for you. So we have a cohort that's just for the ladies that's uh, learning to love and read your Bible for women. Now, uh, let me tell you, this is a, a great cohort. So if you've had questions about um, how do I read God's Word, like uh, what is the difference between Genesis and Revelation? Uh, do we read those two books differently? Uh, how did the Bible come to be? Like how, what, like, how did these 66 books that compile our Bible, how do we figure out which ones belong in the Bible, which ones didn't make the cut? Uh, like, how do we know that our Bible is infallible and is truly the Word of God? If you've had these questions, um, or maybe you know all this, but you're just wanting to grow in your love of Scripture, then this cohort is going to be uh, for you. So uh, go to Grace Point Vegas, uh, and you can get signed up there. Now... I want you to think for a moment about your life. I want you to think about your life. And has there ever been a moment in your life that completely changed the course and direction that you were heading in? Like you were heading in one way, and this, this, this event was so significant that it changed your entire way that you think about things, how you act about things, really how you orient your life around reality has there been something so significant about that? Now, for me, one of those moments, I've had several, but one of those moments uh, was the daughter of my, uh, was the day my daughter Mackenzie was born. Uh, I was uh, some punk kid uh, from uh, Podunkville, Alabama, and I was just working odd jobs. Last week, you guys learned that I worked at Blockbuster Video. Somebody said, man, that was the coolest job ever. But I've had some not-so-cool some not so cool jobs. I, I was the orchid man for a little while. Uh, I went and sprayed for bugs for, for nine months. I worked at an auto body shop. I worked at Arby's roast beef uh, sandwiches. I even worked for a construction company helping customers pick out the finishes for uh, their homes. And so I've done a little, a lot of odd jobs. But when my daughter was born, something clicked in me and said, you know what? I have people that I'm responsible for now. I, I guess I better start doing something with my life. I, I need uh, an education. I need a career. I better do something different. And so that's when I joined the Air Force. So I joined the Air Force, hoping that I would get an education out of it uh, and some type of skill that was, uh, was marketable. And that's how I ended up here in Las Vegas. Now, if you would have looked at me and said, uh, when I was 16 years old and said, Tim, you're going to be living in Las Vegas and you're going to be pastoring a church uh, when you grow up, uh, I would have laughed at your face and just like, that, that just sounds ridiculous to me because I had no plans of ever moving out of Alabama. But here I am, half a world away, completely different world, and I'm here at Grace Point Church with, with you all. That was a significant moment that changed the entire course and direction of my life. Another moment was when I met Jesus. Like I was heading in one direction, living for myself, living for uh, the party life, just, just wanting to just, uh, trying to just find happiness in every moment. But then Jesus saved me and that changed the entire course and direction of my life. I was living for myself and my happiness 
And then the next moment, I'm living for Jesus. Think about that moment where Jesus saved you. That in that moment, before that, all of your life was about your pursuits and your happiness. And Jesus comes in and he kind of wrecks all of that, doesn't he? Uh, and now you're, you're, you're living your life for him. Your life was headed in one direction. And now Jesus saves you and your life is heading in a whole other direction. And so you would expect that since there is this huge moment that there is going to be some things different about your life, right? You can expect that things are going to be different. Well, what I want to do from our text today is I want to show you four ways in which your life should be different when you follow Jesus. So grab your Bibles, turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we are going to see uh, what Peter has to say about that today. Now, if you don't have a Bible, we say this each and every week. So if you are here each and every week and you hear this, you're like, yeah, 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 we get it, we get it. But if you are new here, this is brand new information for you. We lead, teach, and preach from God's Word, and so we really want you to have a Bible. So uh, you can go out to Center Point. There's Bibles out there. Uh, there's tables around the gathering center. To my left and to my right, there's Bibles there. They are free. You are more than welcome to take it. Uh, no one will tackle you for, for trying to grab one. Also, if you are a digifile, you can go onto your app store, download the YouVersion app, and uh, you can look up Grace Point Church. You can go under events, and you can actually follow along in the notes for uh, today. Uh, but what we've been doing uh, as a church is we're going through this book of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter, he's writing to some churches to encourage them uh, uh, in, in their faith as they're persecuted for uh, following Jesus. Uh, and he's, he's saying that there's something that has happened that is so significant that it's going to change how you live out your lives. And so the first thing um, I want you guys to see that is so impactful that should change our lives is, number one, we should let go of sin. Let go of sin. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Um, I want you to see that there's a, the beginning of that verse, it says, since therefore. Uh, now, if you remember, anytime we see that word therefore, we have to ask a question. Do you remember what question that we have to ask when we see that word, therefore? Amen. Exactly. You guys do listen. All right. So what is that word, therefore, therefore? Uh, and this word, therefore, is a clue that says what has been said matters, about, uh, matters for what I'm about to say. It means there's a conclusion that's going to be drawn from this. So let's look back a little bit. We're going to rewind and look back at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. So what happened last week? Well, I'm going to read it to you. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, Peter's trying to convey what he's talking about is the suffering of Jesus on the cross, that Jesus died on the cross, uh, and he um, died for uh, our sins, the, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we can be brought to God. And what he's saying is that the cross was one of those moments that was so influential. It was one of those moments in history that changed the entire course of history for all of humanity. 
I mean, it, it was so influential that, and so um, impactful that it changed history, past, present, and future. And so Peter's saying that since this now happened, it is so impactful that it changes reality. It changes some things. Then we see Jesus didn't just suffer on the cross, but we see that Jesus was victorious and he was raised from the dead and now he is ruling and reigning with God up in heaven. Look at verse 22. He says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So we see that Jesus suffered. And it wasn't just like, you know, he stubbed his toe, like Jesus suffered. But we also see that, that Jesus' suffering led to glory. And Jesus suffered. Now he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. And so if you look at the pattern of Jesus' life, you see this pattern of suffering before glory, right? We, we, like we see that. Uh, in order, if, but before Jesus could be glorified, he first had to suffer. And so Peter is saying that now we need to arm ourselves with this way of thinking, meaning that you and I need to have an understanding that if we follow Jesus, that our, our, the pattern of our lives will follow the same pattern of Jesus's life, suffering and then glory. And I, and I love the way how he says, arm yourselves. And this, this language suggests that you and I, since we are now uh, in Christ, that now we are engaged in the same cosmic battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. We talked about that last week. And, and because of that, we become a target of the enemy. So we need to arm ourselves with this thought. We need to prepare for battle. Uh, and so what do we need to arm? What thought do we need to have to arm ourselves? Well, we arm ourselves with this way of thinking, our mentality. We need to go ahead and get our heads wrapped around this idea that we as Christians should expect suffering. Welcome to church. Now, like, woo, this feels good, doesn't it? Um, like, we as Christians should expect suffering in our lives. We need to go ahead and wrap our heads around this reality. Um, it's, it's not like when you're in the midst of it, then you need to start thinking about it. No, Peter is saying, before you even get to this place of suffering, you need to go ahead and get this thought in your head so that uh, you're not surprised when it happens that we as Christians are going to suffer. And we talked about the different ways that we suffer. We suffer because we just live in a fallen, broken world. But if you are going to follow Jesus, there's an added reality that we will suffer because of our faith. Now, this isn't something that you hear very often in American Christianity. And, and really, no one wants to talk about the Christian life that involves suffering. And what you hear most, it really, in this gospel message is come to Jesus and he's going to make your life better. Come to Jesus and you're going to get to live your best life now. And, and listen, if, if, you, if this is life is your best life and you're trying to live that now, then you have a very poor view of what heaven is going to be. Heaven is just going to be this beautiful and glorious place. And so I hope this isn't the best that there is. I hope there is more to come. And so... Um, I want you to know, though, that yes, following Jesus in some ways does make your life better. Like, there is a, a way that Jesus says, here's how you should live your life, 
And if we follow that, there's a reality that we will eliminate the suffering of uh, the consequences of our own sinful choices, right? We can, we can avoid that by just sometimes living the way Christ has called us to live. But there's a reality that goes along with that, that we will suffer. And truly, this flies in the face of this false gospel that has made its way into the American church that says this prosperity gospel that says Jesus just wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy, and he wants to name and claim and be victorious over all things. And if things are going bad in your life, well, you just don't have enough faith. But, that, uh, but that's just not what we see from Scripture. Now, I, I want you to know that Jesus does want you to be happy. He wants you to be happy in him. Jesus does want you to be wealthy. He just wants you to be wealthy in him. And what Peter is saying is that if we're going to follow Christ, then the reality is is that we are going to follow him into suffering. But Peter says that if we are willing to follow Christ into suffering, then the result of that is that we are going to cease from sinning. We're going to let go of sin. Uh, Look look what he says here in in verse 1. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Some of you are like, wow, I must be a saint because, like, I'm doing nothing but suffering. Um, But what does Peter mean by he says that we're going to cease from sin? Because we all know that even though we are saved, that we still sin. Uh, Maybe that's just the case for me, maybe not for you. Uh, But I know that even though Jesus has saved me, I still sin. So what Peter is saying, he isn't saying that if you suffer that you're never going to sin again. But by suffering, what it ends up doing is our suffering has a way of stripping from our lives the things that we are holding on to instead of Jesus. Sometimes what we are holding on to are good things. They're not necessarily bad things, but we, we take these good things and we make them ultimate things. And we, we turn to these good things to provide us comfort and safety and rest rather than Jesus. And when these things are being stripped from our lives, let's just be honest, it's painful, isn't it? I mean, I would be pretty upset if you took my Netflix away. I mean, uh, I, like when I'm stressed out, I like to go watch some, some Netflix and just check out of reality for a minute. And so if my Netflix went away, I might be a little sad about that. Um, but let's just say, it's, I know it's easier for me to run to Netflix than to run to Jesus. And if we're truly honest about that. And so what Peter is doing, he's setting up this contrast between taking the easy way out versus the hard way out. And I don't know about you, um, what we, we hear, like, work smarter, not harder. So we, we always try to work, take the, the easy way out. But isn't sinning usually taking the easy way out? Isn't it? I mean, think about it. It's easier to sin than it is to obey Jesus sometimes. I mean, judging by how often I sin, it just seems easier, doesn't it, Right? I mean, to do the right thing often involves, I mean, I'm going to have to suffer. It's not always the easy way out. And what Peter is saying is that when we choose to go the route of doing what is right, when we choose the route of following Jesus into suffering, we are saying that we are not going to take the easy way out. We're saying that I'm going to follow Jesus whatever the cost to me. I'm going to follow Jesus whether this hurts or not. I'm going to follow Jesus whether this is painful or not. Whether I suffer or not, for me, there is no turning back. I'm going to do 
what is right. And when we get to that place, when we get to that place where we're, we're, we're willing to say, you know, I'm willing to follow Christ into suffering than to take the easy way out, it means you're, you're, you're making this declaration that I'm done with sin. That doesn't mean that we still don't fall into that, but we're making this, the, the statement, I'm done with that. I am now following Jesus. I would rather suffer than sin. And so Peter's saying that our willingness here to choose between the easy and the difficult is signaling to us that we're done with sin in our life, that we are letting that go. Well, what else is going to be different? Uh, secondly, we're going to live for God and not for self. We're going to let go of sin, and we're going to live for God and not for self. Look at verse 2. He says, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And Peter's saying that when um, the direction and course of our life changes directions because of Jesus, it means now I'm no longer living for myself, but I am living for what God wills in my life. And you can really know if God has gotten a hold of your heart when you can honestly say, you know what? My life isn't about me anymore. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. It's about what God wills for my life. And so he says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, meaning for the rest of my life, it's not about me anymore. It's not about what I want. It's not what about what I will. It's about what Jesus wills for my life. Now, one of the questions I get asked the most as a pastor is, Tim, that's great, but how do I know God's will for my life? How do I determine that? And I love when I get that question as a pastor because it means the person, if they're asking that question, it means they're at least understanding to the point that's like, it's not about me, it's about Christ. And while I may not live out... Um, God's will perfectly, and I'm still struggling with that, my will and God's will, at least it indicates that I'm willing to engage in that struggle. But we have to be careful sometimes as Christians. Because as Christians, like, we, we like to mystify God's will, don't we? Like, like we, we, we're waiting for God to give us this feeling about what we should do. Or we, we're waiting for this voice to come down from heaven that says, yes, you should take the job. Or um, we're, we're, we, we, we're trying to wonder, like, should I be with this person or not? Should I, should I marry this girl or, or, or not? Uh, and we're like, we, we go to scripture and we, we hold it up and we're kind of like pointing around, like, you know, moving our pages around, like treating scripture like a magic eight ball. Like, should I marry her? Oh, Deuteronomy 21.11. If you see a beautiful woman, you should marry her. I guess that must be true. Um, and, and so we're like, that's, uh, that's what worked for me and Kate. So, but you know, a uh, <laughs> kid, a kid. Um, but we do, we mystify trying to find out God's will for our life. Uh, there's a story about a farmer and he had a, a successful farm, and he's trying to discern God's will for his life, and he feels like God's calling him to become an evangelist. And he's sitting there on his farm, he's under a tree, and he's just 
kind of just praying through, Lord, do you want me to be an evangelist? Are you calling me to be an evangelist? Sell my farm and go out. And he's just like just debating and he's praying. And all of a sudden he looks up at the clouds and he, and he noticed that the clouds kind of formed these two letters. And it says P-C. And he's looking at it and it's like, huh, preach Christ. Well, I guess God's calling me to become an evangelist. So he goes and he sells his farm and becomes an evangelist. Only problem is, is that he is a horrible speaker. Uh, and whenever he holds his meetings, no one comes because he speaks so poorly. And so one day he's holding an evangelistic meeting at his, uh, in his hometown. And his friend goes just to encourage him a little bit. Uh, and when he gets done speaking, his friend goes up to him, puts his arm around him and says, do you ever think, that when you looked up at the clouds, PC stood for plant corn. <laughs> and we do. We, we try to uh, like, like look for signs and signals about that. Um, and I, but let me encourage you, it is good to seek God's will. But we have to be careful not to mystify that as Christians. But what we can do is there are specific instances in Scripture when it says... This is God's will for your life. And I truly believe that if you seek out these places in Scripture, where it spells it out very clearly, this is God's will, if you begin doing those and living into those, the Holy Spirit will come and he, you will be able to discern those other parts. What are those, some of those things? Well, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 4.3. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for your life is that you would grow in your love and affection for him. That's God's will for your life, that he wants you just to grow in your love and affection for him. It says, but how do we grow in our love and affection for him? That you abstain from sexual immorality. And I love this picture here that what, G, what, what, what Paul is saying is, and Scripture is letting us in on, that what we do with our bodies sexually matters. And it impacts in some way, somehow, our affection for God. And this flies in comparison to what the world says about our sexuality. But Scripture is saying how we live out our sexuality, what we do with our bodies, it matters. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. It says, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. And the, the 16 and 17 says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Can I just ask you, are you known for being a grateful person? Or are you known for being a grumbling person or a grouchy person? Are, are, are you known for have, being someone that has a gratitude, an attitude of gratitude? Or are you known as someone who just always sees the negative and always sees like you're the Debbie Downer um, uh, of the group? And, and what's happening here is I love how studies are now showing that the best defense against mental health issues is to develop an attitude of gratitude. 
There's so much research and studies being done on how gratitude and gratefulness impacts our mental health. And I love when science finally catches up with Scripture. Like, it's, it's taken them 2,000 years to do it, but they got there finally. Uh, that's good. Uh, and, but here's what we do, right? I do it. You do it. We all do it. We feel like we can't have an attitude of gratefulness. Like, I can't, I need to feel grateful before I act grateful. And if I don't feel grateful, how am I expected to act grateful? That's not authentic. But really, we have that backwards. Uh, we, we have this idea that, you know, um, take it with loving your spouse. Like with Kate, uh, if I waited till I felt love for her before I did loving acts for her, sometimes she might be waiting for a while. <laughs> I mean, I love my wife, but if, if you are here and you're struggling in your marriage, and you're like, I don't love my spouse. I don't have feelings of affection for them. Uh, why don't you try going, just doing acts of love for them and see if the feelings don't follow? And so what, what needs to happen is we need to reverse. We, need, we think feeling precedes action, but we need to reverse that and know that action precedes feeling. So if I want to feel grateful, then I have to do, um, develop, I have to be grateful. Does that make sense? So I, it, I have to be grateful before I feel grateful. That's just a reality sometimes. So here's a challenge for you, church. That was a tongue. That was a, that was a mouthful. Over the next seven days, why don't you find five things to be grateful for in your life? Like, go, go through it. They can be simple things. They can be big things. But spend a few moments each day with these five things and just truly be grateful for them and just see if that doesn't begin to change your attitude and your outlook on life. Well, what else should be different? Number three, we should let go of our past. We should let go of our past. Look down here at verse three. It says, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. It says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they, excuse me, and they malign you. There should come a point in your life of following Jesus where you say, you know what? How I used to live, how I used to think, how I used to act and behave, I'm letting that go. I'm letting go of my past life. And so often what we want to do as Christ followers is we have one hand holding on to Jesus and we have one hand holding on to our past. And for some, there's some that if you looked at their lives, they, they would come here on Sunday and say, yep, I follow Jesus. But if you looked at the, the, the reality of their lives, you would never be able to tell that they are a Christ follower. Look, I get it. I've been there. I, I've, in my younger years, I would sit there and claim Christ, but in the one hand, I would be doing something uh, really sinful. I can, I, can, I can remember one time being at a bar and I was drunk, but I'm sitting there telling my friend about Jesus. I'm like, it's like, th th like, like that, that doesn't jive. 
Like, what kind of, of witness is that? Uh, but we're holding on to uh, Christ, but we're also holding on to our past. And when we come to Christ, we, uh, what Peter is saying is that we need to let those things go. We need to let go of our past. And maybe for some of you, maybe this was, was your past. And maybe you have let go of those things and you're no longer engaging in those things, but your past still haunts you through guilt. Like, you, like you, maybe you've done some things that you're just really ashamed of and, and you wish, uh, like you just can't keep letting those things go and you're having a hard time understanding that Jesus uh, took care of all of that on the cross. And maybe this is just the invitation to you to just let go of your guilt. Maybe Jesus is calling to, let's say this morning, is like, guess what? I covered that on the cross. It, th- those things are gone. As far as the east is from the west, we, we can let those things go. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you say, Tim, I wish I could let go of my past, but it seems like my past uh, will not let go of me. Uh, like I'm not holding on to these things anymore, but they're, they're holding on to me. Uh, and if, I, I wish I could let these things go. And if this is you, I, let me just say I understand where you're coming from. I get that. And if this is you and you say, I have some things in my life I want to let go of, I want to lay down, uh, I've let go, but for some reason, these things have a hold on me, I would just say, let us know. We have help for that. We really do. We have a program called Refuge. It's our refuge recovery program. And so maybe here, maybe drinking it, it has a hold of you, or maybe it's eating or pornography or, or anxiety or depression or grief, or, or maybe someone has hurt you and you're, you're having a hard time. That hurt just seems overwhelming and you're, you're having a hard time letting that hurt go. Or maybe you're having a difficult time uh, learning to forgive in that. Let me encourage you. We have help for you in that. Our refuge recovery program, uh, signups are open right now. It is 17 weeks and people will walk alongside you in the most loving and caring ways to help you let go of those things. Lastly, what is going to be different about our lives is that we are going to live for more than this life. We're going to live for more than this life. Look at verse 5. It says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We should orient our lives around what really matters. Because there is more to life than just this life. The Bible says that our life is just a vapor, that our, our life here on earth, on this side of eternity, is really just a blip on the radar screen. And the reality is, is that we, as, as, as followers of Jesus, we know this, that everyone lives forever somewhere. And our life on this side of the grave is only just a little bit. And so we will either spend eternity with our Savior, or we will spend an eternity in hell. And the reality is, is that one day we will stand before Jesus and have to give an account for our lives. And here in verse 5, he's saying 
that those who don't follow Jesus are going to have to stand before God and give an account for their lives, how they lived out their lives. So for them, this life right now, since they have no hope of heaven, this right now is all the happiness that they're going to enjoy. This earth is the only heaven that they're ever going to experience. So it makes sense. Why not explore and pursue all of these earthly uh, pleasures? Why not pursue all the world has to offer because this is the only joy and and happiness I will ever get to experience? So why, why not do all I can to feel good? Why not do all I can to chase my dreams? Why not um, spend all my money on what I want? Uh, Why not um, make uh, the most of what you have? Why not make a bucket list and try to check off every, as many of those things I can before I hit the grave? See, what else is there except on earth besides this earthly happiness? So it makes sense, right? It makes sense that they're going to live for sensuality and for passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And that lawless idolatry is just kind of like, it just sums up everything else. That's the catch-all. Because this is the only pleasure that they're going to experience. So for them, because they have no hope of heaven and they believe this life is all there is, It doesn't make sense to them when you don't join in on that. When you begin to live your life differently, it it doesn't make sense. Look back at verse 4. It says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. That word surprise means they're just shocked. Like they're flabbergasted. Like like, it's just like it's impossible for me to comprehend why you would live your life this way. Why wouldn't you do these things? Why would you possibly wait to have sex before marriage? Like wait to be married before having sex? Why would you only commit to having one sexual partner? Uh, Why would you sell everything you have and become missionaries in El Salvador? Uh, Why would you give 10% of your money to the church? Why wouldn't you use that money on you and what you want to do? Uh, why would you speak out against abortion, uh, abortion and injustices in the world? Like, why? like it, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense to them. And so what happens is, is they malign you. They make fun of you because that's, to them, that's just weird. But the reality is, if you're a Christ follower here, you know that there is more than just this life. And if you know that there is more than just this life, then that changes things for you. You begin to live for more than just this life. Look back at verse 6. It says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, this is a little bit of a confusing text. You're like, what in the world is Peter talking about? It seems like he's talking in circles. But it's really genius and beautiful what Peter is trying to tell us right here. So I'm going to try to walk us through it. It kind of reads like Peter is saying that the gospel was preached to to dead people. Uh, But what Peter is saying is that, no, he's saying that the gospel was preached to people who were alive when the gospel was being preached, but who are now dead. This is what's going on. When Peter is writing this letter to these churches, 
They were being persecuted and they were suffering because of their faith in Jesus. And so these were people who had heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, changed the way how they lived. They lived their lives according to the gospel. They lived their lives uh, because they believed there was something more than this life. And when they got to the end of their lives, they died just like everybody else. So they said, you know what? Because I believe the gospel, I'm not going to go to this idol party anymore. I'm not going to go to this orgy. I'm not going to go to this drinking party. I'm not going to participate in those things. And what was happening is that the, the culture around them was making fun of them. They're like, look at you Christians. Like you're giving up all of this. And what good does it give you? Like what good does it do you? Like you're dying like the rest of us. Like, like you're giving up all this and you're dying like us. So what, like, why does it matter that you give up these things? Because you're just going to die in the end anyway. What Peter is saying, that even though that these people who were in Christ have died, and while they may not have experienced all the worldly pleasures that this world had to offer, they are now dead but they are experiencing the full joy of heaven. Peter's saying they suffered on earth, they suffered death, but now they're getting to experience their best life now. They're getting to experience the same glory that their Savior is experiencing. Do you think anybody in heaven right now is up there in heaven saying, dang it, I wish I had sex with more people. Or, dang it, I, I, I wish I'd have gone to more parties. Or, or I, I wish I would have I had more fun. I wish I'd have done more sinful things. I guarantee you, they are not saying that. They are not saying, I wish I'd have spent my money more on myself. I guarantee they are not there in heaven right now saying, I missed out here on earth. That I got shorted and shortchanged somehow because I gave up these things. They are in heaven experiencing the fullness of glory with their Savior. And Peter's telling us to look at those who've lived their life for Jesus and then now experiencing all the things that heaven has to offer. So Peter's just reminding us that there is more to life than just this life. And if we know that and we realize that, then we begin to see that Jesus changes everything. I want you to think back to that again, that moment that you were saved. That moment when your life was heading in one direction, but now Jesus has saved you uh, from eternity in hell. Like you were going your own way, but God, he came in and he saved you. Now, this morning, I don't have a huge life application moment for, for, for you from this text. But I do want us each all to just take a moment and reflect on our lives. If Jesus has saved you, can you see a difference in your life? Can you, is, has there been a course and direction change in your life? Is there a distinction in that uh, where you were once living for yourself, but now that Jesus has radically saved you, now you are living for him? Is there a pattern where I'm letting go of sin? 
Now, I'm still struggling with it. I'm still wrestling with it. But, you know, by God's grace, I'm, I'm, I'm letting go of that. Is there something that you're still holding on to? Is there a pattern of living for what God wills for your life? Or are you still living your life for however they way that you want? Are you making it a pattern to let go of your past or are you still holding on to some things from your past? And again, maybe some of you are here just holding on to that guilt and I just, I just pray that you're able to let that go. See, Christian, we are living for more than just this life. And I want to remind you that while we may miss out on some of the things that this world has to offer, but what this world offers pales in comparison to what Jesus has in store for us. And that we are not just living our life for this moment, but we are living our life for all of eternity. I want you to know the best is yet to come. I want to leave you with this story. Some of you have probably heard this before but it fits and it'll do you good to hear it again. There was a young woman who was diagnosed with a terminal illness and she was given three months to live. So she had the pastor come over her house to plan uh, her funeral service to kind of get all of her things in order. And the pastor came and she told him, hey, these are the songs I want to be sung at my funeral. These are the scriptures I want to be read at my funeral, and uh, this is the, the dress that I would like to be buried in. And so when they're about getting ready to be done, the pastor's getting up, and he's getting ready to walk out the door, and she says, but pastor, wait. There's one more thing that I want done at my funeral, and, and this one's really important to me. So the pastor, he kind of begins to lean in and like wondering what it is that she's requesting And she says, I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. And the pastor looks at the uh, the young woman, and he's kind of puzzled. He's curious about why she wants to have a fork in her right hand. And it's just, it's a strange request. And the woman just realizes that she's kind of stunned the pastor. And the pastor says, well, can you explain to me why uh, you're requesting that? And so uh, the young woman says, well, I can remember growing up, any time that we uh, would go to a social or a dinner or something, I always remember that when the dishes of the main course were being cleared away from the table, just always remember my grandmother leaning over to me and saying, keep your fork. And she said that always meant for me that something better was about to come. Maybe something delicious like a velvety chocolate cake or a deep dish apple pie, but something wonderful was coming and something with substance and so that because I needed a fork. And she says, so I want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand and I want them to wonder, what is that fork for? And then I want you to tell them, pastor, to keep the fork because the best is yet to come. So the pastor, just hearing this, began to just well up with tears, and really tears of sadness and tears of joy, because he knew this this was probably going to be one of the last times that he spoke to her before she passed, and she did eventually go on to to pass away, 
And they held her funeral, and at her funeral, the songs were being sung, and the scriptures were being read, and people were coming by, and they were paying their last respects at her, laying there in the casket. They saw her sitting, laying there with a fork in her hand. People are going by, what's with the fork? I don't know what the fork, like, that's just weird. Why is the fork there? I don't know. And the pastor's over there, he's just kind of smiling as people are just wondering, what is this fork for? And then the pastor explains to them what the fork was for, that the best was yet to come. And he said that this was this woman's prayer, that the church would then know that there is more than this life and that the best was yet to come and that they would always remember that and never forget that. And she asked them that any time that they would grab a fork, that they would just kind of quietly pause for a moment and say, the best is yet to come. So church, I want to leave you with that. There is more than this life, and the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we worship you, we praise you. Father, we we are just so grateful for your son, Jesus, who gave his life, who was willing to go through agonizing suffering so that we might have hope, that we might have hope that there is more than just this life. That while we are here, we may miss out on some things. We may experience suffering. We may experience suffering for you. But Father, I just pray that you would just put into our hearts uh, this hope and this understanding and this, this, this knowledge of that this life is not all there is, but the best is yet to come. Father, just help us to let go of all the things that we've been holding on to. And just help us and give us the strength to hold on to you. So, Father, we just ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.